Jonah chapter 4. And if I had to title today's talk, I would title it, Does God Love Hitler? Does God Love Hitler? I've come to realize that so many people, believer and non-believer alike, are really confused about the grace of God and biblical salvation. Easter Sunday, I made the point in our message that week that God loves all people. One of our students came up to me after that Sunday morning message, and he looked at me, and he says, I really struggle with that. And I go, why? He goes, Tim, do you really believe, do you really believe that the God of Jesus Christ would have allowed Hitler into heaven if Hitler would have repented and truly turned from his sin before he died? I struggle with that. That was the question one of our students posed to me. I've been posed that type of question many times in my journey. But I think the question we all struggle with is, have you personally ever struggled with how the evil, wicked, extreme sinner could really experience God's grace, forgiveness, and be saved? When you start to ponder and really marinate on the scripture of Jonah, that's Jonah's argument. Jonah is mad. Jonah is frustrated that God is asking him to go to Nineveh, and he's mad because Nineveh is flooded with witchcraft, wickedness, prostitution. They skin people alive. They're haters of God. They're brutal when it comes to their wicked ways. That is Jonah's argument. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. Listen to this. When God saw that they, Nineveh, the entire city of Nineveh, had repented from their evil ways, he had mercy on them and he did not carry out the destruction that he had threatened. When God saw repentance, when God saw confession, when God saw turning from sin, he would withheld and removed his hand of judgment and wrath from Nineveh. Chapter 4, verse 1. This change of plans upset Jonah greatly, and he became angry. Verse 2, so he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. I knew how easily you could counsel your plans for destroying these people. Listen to Jonah's conclusion. Just kill me. I'd rather be dead than alive. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went to the east of the city and made a shelter to sit under, and he waited to see if anything would happen to the city. He was still hoping God was going to smoke the Ninevites. He was still hoping that God was going to crush the city of Nineveh. The Lord God, he arranged for a plant to grow there, and soon it spread over Jonah's head. Jonah was chilling, enjoying that, until God also prepared a worm. The next morning, the worm ate through the stem of the plant, so it soon died and withered. The sun grew hot. God sent a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint. He wished to die. Again, Jonah makes the declaration, death is certainly better than this. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yeah, said Jonah, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness. Shouldn't I feel sorry and shouldn't I feel compassion for such 
a great city. Get it? Jonah had some twisted thinking. The premise of Jonah's argument is why does God extend grace and love and mercy to Hitler? How in the world could God love Dahmer, Manson, Stalin, and Tim? Think about it. Place your name into the equation. How could God really love people that have lived sinful lives? People that have not honored the Lord. How can God love such evil people? Jonah's conclusion is bad people need to die and go to hell and wicked people need to be fried. You ever made that kind of observation yourself? Verse 2, so he complained to the Lord about it. He complained to the Lord about it. I want you to get this. Write it in your notes. Make sure you get this. There is a difference between having a critical eye and having a critical spirit. A critical eye allows you and almost grants you the ability to discern. A person with a critical eye can discern, make observations and evaluations, but it's all about how can I bring something good out of this. A critical eye will allow you to address an issue. A critical spirit will always damn, it will always condemn, it will always judge. Where a critical eye allows you to maybe address the issue, a critical spirit causes you to attack the person. Jonah complained. Jonah had stinking thinking. Jonah Jonah needed a checkup from the neck up. Jonah needed to get right in his perspective. Jonah criticized. Here's a working definition for criticism. It means to find fault, to blame, to condemn. To find fault, to condemn, to judge. Have you ever noticed how we judge others by their actions, but yet we judge ourselves by our intentions? You ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that? All of a sudden, you do something stupid. And I'm speaking to people in this room that has done something stupid. The person speaking has done a lot of things stupid. Come on, Barb. <laughs> and it's so easy to say, but, but, but baby, listen to me. My intention was. My intention may have been a BB, but the impact was a boulder. Listen to me. We judge others by their actions, but we'll judge ourselves by our intentions. Reality is, we can't rightly judge the motive of anyone. Wouldn't it be cool that if God would have allowed us somehow to have in our hand or in our mind this x-ray heart machine, and we could walk up to a person and go, I know exactly the motive of your heart. (laughs) Reality is, when it comes to our own heart, even Jeremiah would say, the heart is sick and it's deceitfully wicked. Who can understand it? We don't even understand our own hearts, but yet a critical spirit will start to attack the hearts of other people. A critical spirit is having an obsessive attitude of disapproval, fault finding. It seeks to tear down and not build up. 
A critical spirit will dwell on the negative. It will look for flaws. It won't look for positive qualities or characteristics in another person. A critical spirit is always complaining. And it's usually upset with something or somebody. A critical spirit, when you see it, people seem not to have much control over their temper or their tongue. And they have a tendency to slander and gossip and shred other people. I don't want to get too personal with you, but do you know anybody that has a critical spirit? But, but, but before you look too far out the window and start throwing rocks, lift up the mirror and ask, do you have a critical spirit? What shipwrecked Jonah was his critical spirit. What, what caused Jonah to really miss God and miss God's heart was he had a critical spirit. If you have a critical spirit and you function out of a critical spirit, you probably say things like, well, I'm just being discerning. Well, I'm just being honest. Well, well, brother, I'm just telling it like it is, really. So you're the fourth member of the Trinity, and God has now released all this authority to you. God needs you to correct the world, really. David H. Fink, a psychiatrist, he researched the causes of mental and emotional disturbances with over 10,000 case studies, he discovered that there was a common trait with all of his patients who suffered from severe stress. They were habitual fault finders and constant critics of people and circumstances. His conclusion was the habit of fault finding is a mark of the mentally unbalanced. A critical spirit not only hinders you in your personal faith, but it can be absolutely disastrous to the church, to the body. I was sharing with my prayer partner, Kenny, this morning. I said, since I've been here for five plus years, I've asked two people to leave the church. And both people that I asked to leave had complaining critical spirits. They were cancerous. They were negative. They were blowing up every relationship around them. And I said, you know, the, the, the thing is, I remember the one brother who was trying to get off of meth, who, trying to get his life together. He came in here one Sunday, sat on the front row, and while I'm preaching, he's spitting in the cup. I look, and he's got a dip in. I'm like, I'm glad you're here. I remember one Sunday, a lady met me in the lobby. I just wanted to come to church today, and she reeked alcohol. I said, keep an eye on her, but I'm glad she's here. The church is a place where lost people can be found, where crippled lives can be restored. But when it comes to critical spirits of those who call themselves believers and create all this cancerous, diseased issue within the body, it's like, no, you're not going to do that. A critical spirit prevents us from being able to see the good things, the God things, uh, a, a critical spirit, it blinds our eyes. It's almost like putting on shades and everything looks cloudy to you. You ever notice how a person with a critical spirit almost hopes and expects that something will go wrong? You, you ever notice that? A person with a critical spirit almost has this need for negativity. I've noticed that. Like, why is it that everywhere you go, there's something wrong with it? Critical people hurt themselves and they create 
an incredible infection elsewhere. Verse 2, so he complained to the Lord about it. I want to break down some causes of having a critical spirit. It's in your bulletin, but I want you to jog with me here. What causes a critical spirit? Ever thought about that? What causes you to complain? What causes you to miss God's perspective? One would be our sinful flesh. Our sinful flesh. A person who is walking in the flesh and not the spirit, or they're, they're, they're going to be infected quite often. It's impossible to live the abundant life in Christ when you're functioning out of the flesh. To say it another way, if you don't discover who you are in Christ, you'll go back and uncover who you were apart from Christ. And the flesh will always seek to gravitate toward the familiar. Godly people are full of hope and full of joy and full of love. And they're expecting God to do something great. But a person who's functioning in the flesh, do an entire study on that sometime, the difference between the flesh and the spirit. Another thing that causes a critical spirit is having a poor self-image. A poor self-image. Hurting people will always hurt other people. I heard that years ago, but it makes more sense to me now than ever. When you meet a person who is constantly critical, they're probably suffering from poor self-image. They see themselves as unworthy and unlovable and not attractive. So what do they end up doing? They find faults with other people. They find flaws with other people. And when you do that, it almost allows you in your mind to rationalize that it's okay that you don't have to look at your own stuff. You don't have to feel your own stuff. And I've dealt with people that complain who have a critical spirit and they're constantly, again, doing life out of a window where they're seeing everybody else, but they never do introspection and pick up the mirror to go, do I have poor self-image? Here's another one, refusing to embrace God's grace. It's so much easier to see other people's sin at times than it is our own. But judgmental people are not in tune with God's grace. Judgmental people are not in tune with God's grace. Can I tell you what I know about me and I know about you? There's a Pharisee heart inside of all of us desiring still to come out. Until God totally redeems us and reshapes us and renews us, all of us can be Pharisees at times. What caused the Pharisees to miss out on what Christ was doing? When you look at Luke 15, it says that Jesus was associating with despicable sinners and just notorious no-goods, and this made the Pharisees and the religious people complain. Why are you hanging out with such thugs like that? And Jesus goes, that's the heart of the Father. That's the heart of the gospel. When you see other people's sin, ponder this. When you see other people's sin, do you realize that you're just as capable of doing that as they are if God would remove his grace from you? Robert McGee was doing a Bible study for our couple's Bible study years ago. Robert McGee wrote the book, The Search for Significance and The Search for Freedom. And I remember that Robert McGee, he shared this story about doing this marriage counseling with a couple. And the guy had been unfaithful. He had cheated on her and she was absolutely livid with her husband. And she looks and says, I can't believe you would treat me that way. I would never do you that way. And Robert McGee said, I looked at her and said, ma'am, you don't realize you're capable of doing vile things. I would never do that to him. 
And Robert said, I paused and said, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to remove the Holy Spirit and the presence and the power of Christ from your life for the next month where you can see what you're capable of doing apart from Christ. And she began to weep and say, don't pray that. Don't pray that. Because deep down inside of each and every one of us, we're twisted. Deep down inside of each and every one of us, there's nothing good that dwells within me, that being in my flesh. What do you do? I would, I would question, I would question this in my own personal life. Have I honestly faced my sin and experienced God's grace? Have I dealt with sin thoroughly in my life? Have I wept over my own sin? Have I wept and cried over my own sin? Because all of us are born into the world suffering from large levels of depravity. We're all born into the world depraved. Ephesians 2 says we're all born into the world spiritually lost. I would say deal with sin thoroughly. One of the things I've noticed, even as I've traveled over the years, when you see a person who is harsh and who is critical, and I saw this a lot in some of the independent, fundamental kind of stuff that I was a part of years ago, Baptist kind of thinking. When a person has unconfessed sin in their life, they're oftentimes quick to hammer somebody else. People that have been forgiven much have a tendency to love much. But people who hide much are still struggling with their own personal anger, bitterness in their soul, and they have a tendency to attack others. Here's another one. Insecurity and immaturity causes a critical spirit. Criticism is oftentimes a way to kind of create and present a false self-image. Watch it. Putting down others, they're actually trying to build themselves up and to come across as if they have more knowledge. So when a person has a critical spirit, they may be suffering big time from immaturity and insecurity. Being envious of the success of others is an indicator that something's wrong inside of me. When another person wins and another person scores and another person goes after it and has success and I sit here envious and almost I resent that, I need to pause and go, why is that happening inside of me? Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep and celebrate the successes of other people. Good for you. You know, another thing that really creates, though, and causes a critical spirit is bitterness inside the soul. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 says, See to it that no root of bitterness spring up amongst you, wherefore by it many are ruined and defiled. Bitterness. It will oftentimes develop in us when we reject God's forgiveness toward us and forgiving other people. When you reject the grace of God to forgive someone else, bitter, anger, resentment, and all this stuff can start to kind of well up inside of you. What was happening with Jonah? Why did he complain? We're your people. We're chosen by you. We're the Israelites. We're the Jews. They're hellions. They deserve hell. 
There's something good in me. Can I tell you something? I am so thankful for forgiveness that would cleanse me once and for all for all my sin. There's not a person in this room, not a person in this state, not a person on this planet that needed forgiveness more than I did. When the Apostle Paul would say, I am the chief of all sinners, wouldn't that be a cool way to kind of look at ourselves when it comes to judging others? I'm a saint now in Christ Jesus. You are a saint, Tim. That's your identity and position. But before you met Christ, who were you? I was the chief of all sinners. Here's another one. Bad company. Bad company. My dad always said, hang out with dog, son. You're getting fleas on you. I thought that was a verse. <laughs> I mean, an old eighth grade educated drywall man. He was just dropping proverbial wisdom on me. But bad company, 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good character. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company. If you're a positive person and you constantly hang around with negative people that are always griping and complaining, guess what? Sooner or later, they'll start to have some type of influence on you. They're going to have some type of influence on you. And so one of the things I've learned, do you hang out with lost people? Yes. Yes. But I always watch what is the playground, the arena that I'm hanging out with a lost person in. What is the arena that I'm hanging out in? And so I would highly encourage you, watch your closest associates. Watch your closest associates. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27 says, don't give the devil an opportunity. Revelation 12 refers to Satan as the accuser of the brethren. When you're hanging out with people who are negative, and you're hanging out with people who are making accusations all the time, be careful. <laughs> but how do you overcome a critical spirit? All right, now here's what I want you to hear. One thing I know for sure, fake smiles, suppressing anger, and a lot of superficial praise the Lord's is not doing anything to build the kingdom of God. If there's anything that makes me sick in church culture is posers and performers Praise the Lord. Good to see you. Save it. No, be real. Be honest. Lay, let's lay the cards on the table. Come on, Trevor. We got to get real, man. All this Christianese and sensational spiritual jargon that people use. I'm like, that don't even make sense to me. And it definitely don't make sense for people that don't go to church. So, so how do you overcome a critical spirit? One, I would say this. Sin needs to be defeated and dealt with thoroughly. Only you know where you're at. Only you know what is at the core of your belief system. Only you know what your thinking patterns are. Only you know what the root of your issues are right now. You've got to be willing to come before the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit to turn on his searchlight to examine me, as David said. Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me and see if there's any anxious ways inside of me. I've got to deal with anything in me that's not allowing you to be sovereign and king in my life. Now, does that make sense? 
Jesus makes the observation in the Gospels when he says, hey, 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 let's do something. Let's do something here. Let's take the log out of our eye before we try to get the speck out of anybody else's eye. What is he saying? Michael Jackson, we're starting with a man in the mirror, brother. We're going to start with a man in the mirror. We're going to look and say, what is the log in my eye? Is there anything in me that needs to be dealt with? So I've got it in your notes. We need to have our spiritual eyes open to two truths. One, the depth of our own sin. And two, the depth of God's grace toward us. If my spiritual eyes become illuminated to these two truths, let me say, do you realize how vile you are? Yes. Do you understand my grace, that it's unmerited and undeserved? I'm learning it every day. I wrote this down. I would pray something like this. God, would you help me see myself more clearly and know your love more intimately? Help me to experience the depth of my own sin and the abundance of your grace. You want to pray something simple but yet profound. Would you please help me see myself more clearly? But to really understand and dive into your grace and love more intimately. You love me. You're for me. You're not against me. The more we experience God's grace, the more we will become motivated to extend grace and love and compassion and mercy to other people. Did you hear me? The more we wallow and experience and marinate and saturate in this incredible love and grace that God has for us, the more motivated I become then to release that love, grace, mercy, compassion to other people. What would happen if we channeled all of our negative, critical energy into a conversation with God? What would happen if we tapped the brakes and used the philosophy that said, always talk to God first? What would happen if I spent time praying for the other person and also praying for my response that I would share with the other person? What would happen if we met people and treated them as if we were trying to build them up and not tear them down? What would happen if we really did believe that God was the only one capable of accurately discerning the motives of another person? What would happen if the goal was really reconciliation, repentance, and restoration in the relationship? What, what about if God's true heart toward Nineveh all alone was to see a city that was wicked and vile, repent and not eliminated? What if the heart of the, the Father in the Old Testament is the same heart of the Father in the New Testament that he's always been about restoration and not elimination anyway? What about if our perspective and view of God really does drive everything that we do in life? Conquering a critical spirit. Here's some things I wrote down. We need to develop a strong, intimate relationship with Jesus. And we need to be filled and we need to be controlled by the Holy Spirit because we all leak and it's like, fill me and control me. Lord, I, I want to know you. 
We need to submit ourselves to God daily and take Romans 12 serious where he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We need to cultivate a healthy self-image and an identity based on God's grace and not based on our form of behavior. When I started thinking through that, I'm like, what shipwrecked so many people? They see themselves according to what they used to do and not who God says they are now. I'm like, I'm a saint. I'm a child of God. I'm loved. I'm cherished. We need to humble ourselves daily before God, repent, confess, deal with our sin. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We need to accept God's acceptance of us, and we need to believe what God believes about us. Romans 8 says, what shall separate you from the love of God? I'm like, nothing. We need to accept God's acceptance of us. We need to believe what God believes about us. We need to apply God's grace and then release that same grace to every person that we meet. We need to learn to resist Satan so that we don't become a tool in his hand that can be used to cause disruption. You believe that believers can be used by Satan? You doggone right I do. And I've seen it happen too many times. You believe they can be possessed by Satan? I can believe they can be oppressed by the enemy and their minds become so twisted that they don't know right from wrong. So the question that I posed out of the gate was, does God love Hitler? You answer the question. But the real struggle is, does man's behavior determine God's character? No! No! Even Paul would write to Timothy, even when we're faithless, he remains faithful because he can't deny being who he is. Did Hitler's actions reflect that he loved God? No. Listen to this. Chapter 4, verse 9. God said to Jonah, uh, to Jonah, Hey, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? You feel sorry about the plant. You did nothing to put it there. Nineveh has more than 120,000 people that are living in spiritual darkness. Shouldn't I have compassion for such a great city? Jonah, you're griping about a plant. I told Barb this morning, I go down to get some cardio in at about 5.30, 5.40, and I notice in our basement, in my little workout room, one of my weight plates had been flipped over, and there's this rust spot on the carpet. I'm like, somebody poured water there or something. Well, just on the other side of the wall, I'm like, oh, hold, hold on. And I started filling around. I'm like, man, that, that's not a cup of water. So I open up the room where the uh, water heater is, and I'm like, hmm, hmm, hmm. Here we go. Water all over the floor. Water had leaked in. I hung out with Paul and Artie. Neil and Lee's family from Guyana. We were talking the other night about where they live. Do y'all have hot water? They said, no. I went over and turned it off, and I said, neither do I right now. But how can I complain 
listening to where they're from and where they live. I'm like, so you don't have water? Who cares? And we complain about stuff oftentimes that we become like addicted to because it provides a convenience for us. Here's my question. When are you critical? When, when are you critical? I didn't ask you, are you critical? All of us can be critical at times. As Nick and I talked about this, we all leak with criticism at times. What makes you critical? Who are you critical with right now? What type of critical spirit do you have with a person right now that you know before the Lord God is saying, you're hindering the spirit from being able to work in your life? What is God asking you to do this morning? What relationship is God asking you to clean up? What sin is God asking you to deal with? Russell Moore, in his book, Onward, made this observation. He said, the kingdom of God ought to reshape our vision of what matters and who matters. He goes on to say, the next Billy Graham might be drunk right now in a pub. The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with a Darwin fish on his bumper. The next John Piper might be a profane hip-hop artist right now. The next Charles Spurgeon could be managing an abortion clinic. The next Mother Teresa could be a heroin-addicted porn star. The atheist in front of you that just cut you off in traffic and flipped you a kind gesture might be the person that God's desiring to use to reach your grandchildren with the gospel. In the book of Acts, it says that while Philip was leading the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ, the the dude named Saul of Tarshish was murdering Christians. Slay the self-righteousness. There's nothing good that dwells within any of us. God is inviting us to experience the grace of the gospel that only he offers. And then once we become a recipient of that grace and we are filled with the Holy Spirit, God then says, go into your own world and extend that grace to other people. God cares about all people. I was reading through that book onward and I thought, that's trippy, but it's true. When I stand a few weeks back and I do my buddy Eric's funeral, I looked and said, probably out of the 300 plus that graduated in the class of 1980 from Noonan High School, I was probably the most unlikely to be pastoring today. What is God wanting to do in your life? What is God wanting to do in the lives of those around you? When you get serious about loving on people and not judging people and not condemning people, and you share the love of Christ with them, we don't know what God wants to do. But we know 
that we live in Nineveh in our culture today. If God said, take the gospel to the Taliban, take it to the extreme most vile jihads, we're not going to really throw a lot of stones at Jonah. No, they're killing people and they're blowing up buildings and they're exploding stuff in Rome and New York and all over. Go take them the gospel. It might be the next Billy Graham. We don't know. But the love of Christ compels us to embrace and to extend that grace to others. 